From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The calls for police reform sparked by the death of George Floyd only intensified when Black Lives Matter protests turned violent during clashes with law enforcement. At least eight people were partially blinded in one day across the country, including a man who lost one of his eyes when he was struck during a demonstration in Denver. We'll talk with him. Then, COVID-19 has meant more deaths in Colorado than normal for this time of year, but there are hundreds of additional deaths that have yet to be explained. Plus, how one Colorado community is cutting off cars to keep places open. And it may be the go-to sport to get away from it all in the pandemic. Going out there and doing the fishing, thinking about something else, having that fresh air was amazing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Russell Strong came to Civic Center Park in May with a sign and good intentions to peacefully support Black Lives Matter. Minutes later, the Lakewood resident was blinded in one eye, hit in the face by a police projectile meant to control crowds. He wasn't the only one. Several people were hit in the face that same night, and a bystander also lost an eye. The same thing was happening across the country, according to Partially Blinded by Police, a video report by The Washington Post. I'm joined by Russell Strong in the studio and on the phone by Washington Post reporter John Swain. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Russell, it was a Saturday. It was your day off, and you hadn't been to a Black Lives Matter protest. Why did you want to go? Um, I protest because I'm American, you know, and I hold my hand over my heart, and I say that pledge, that, and it's justice and liberty, liberty and justice for all. And when I see things like the Elijah McClain case, and I see things like the Breonna Taylor and people being murdered in their homes and there's no accountability, then that doesn't look like justice to me. And so I feel like as an American, I have a civil duty to stand up against those things and voice and, and bring awareness to where there's those injustices in America. So set the scene for us on May 30th. You say you arrived in Civic Center Park around 630 or 645 and checked into the hospital less than an hour later. Tell us briefly what happened. Um, we, like you said, arrived about 6.45. We uh, approached from the west. We walked past the Capitol building through Civic Center Park um, and eventually kind of settled there at the corner of Lincoln and Colfax where there was the, the largest amount of people and a, the chanting was coming from that spot in that area so we were uh, drawn to that area um, I just joined the crowd I put my hands up everybody had their hands up I put my hands up I had the sign I'm holding that over my head we're chanting and um, the police just start shooting things into the crowd um, everyone kind of back starts to back up some people turn to run and um, I'm struck in the face with a projectile and knocked unconscious and um, then I'm, I'm carried by protesters to an ambulance, I guess, that was nearby after that. And can you describe your injuries? Um, I, my, pretty much the whole side of that, my face was caved in. I had uh, fractures in all the bones in my face. I lost the eye. They had to remove that. Uh, several broken teeth. And um, I've had to have several plates 
installed to kind of give the structure back to my face and the eye socket. Now, other people were hit in the face in Denver that night as well, including another man who lost his eye completely. John Swain of the Washington Post, you found this happened across the country. Are the stories similar? Many of them are similar in that people were struck when they weren't posing a threat to police, when they weren't attacking property or, or doing anything really to to warrant action by the police. We, we found videos showing that people in many cases were just uh, pr- protesting peacefully. They were walking down side streets to the to the outskirts of the protest. They were, in some cases, taking photos, being photojournalists, covering these protests. And so there are different circumstances, but in many cases, there were troubling uh, similarities in those cases. And what made you think that there was a story here? Well, I'd covered protests a few years ago in, in Ferguson and Baltimore. My colleagues had, had, had covered other protests. And we thought that this seemed to be new, that we didn't remember even a few years ago um, people coming out of these protests losing eyes. And um, the American Academy of Ophthalmology and, and eye doctors seem to think the same thing. It's hard to track these things because there aren't official data kept. But it does seem that in this wave of protests after the death of George Floyd, for whatever reason, there seemed to be a lot more of these cases where people were sustaining very serious injuries to their eyes and to their faces. And what... we just thought that was something that needed to be examined. And what's causing most of those injuries? There's a real variety of projectiles being used by the police. You know, often they are called the generic term rubber bullets, but that really doesn't describe very well what these things actually are these days. There are, in many cases, uh, cloth pouches filled with lead shot, which are called beanbag rounds, but really they're more like um, amended shotgun rounds. Um, there are pellets that are kind of paintball size that contain sometimes chemical irritants. There are wooden bullet, sort of large oversized bullets that are shot. There are foam, compressed foam um, pellets that are fired. So there's a real variety. Sometimes gas canisters as well hit people in the face in, in some of the cases we examined. But in all those cases, you know, these things were hard enough and, and shot fast enough to cause serious damage. And John, you say that you've seen a difference in protests of 2014 and 2015 and protests now, these injuries. Do you think that these munitions that you generally categorize as rubber bullets, have they proliferated? They do seem to have. Again, it's very difficult to track these things because police aren't sometimes obliged to release how much money they're spending on these things, how many rounds they keep. In some cases where I asked the police department this time around, can you tell us, can you give us an account of how many were fired by your officers? That was sort of brushed off as just not even possible. Um, so it does seem that they were used more often this time, but unfortunately that is anecdotal. We don't have good solid data and police are sometimes unwilling to release information on on how often they're fired. And you mentioned the American Academy of Ophthalmology. In June, they actually called for an immediate end to the use of rubber bullets because of what they call an alarming rate of eye injuries. Russell, what do you think hit you? Um, I'm fairly confident whatever hit me was um, some kind of concussive round. Um, Not a rubber bullet, not a beanbag. I think that's um, pretty evident when you look at the structural damage to my face. Um, it, whatever it was had some type of explosive element to it. Um, I think people use the generic term flashbang, um, but it, whatever it was was some kind of concussive round. 
And Russell, I am sure that there are some people who might say, you went to a protest, you took the risk, maybe the police were provoked. What do you say to that? Um, I, that's just simply not true. I mean, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I've never been arrested. I don't intend to ever entangle with police. I respect the law. And I, I, I just am a person of compassion, and I care about doing what's right and doing what's good for others. And, my, and I feel like that was the noble or honorable thing to do was to go to that protest. And I did it with the best intentions and certainly not the intentions to loot or vandalize or commit crimes or anything like that. I went with two of my friends that were females. We were not out there trying to put ourselves in danger. That's just simply not our intent at all. Mm. And John, you took a close look at cell phone video. What does it show about the crowds? Were the police provoked? People throwing rocks, for example? In some cases, there were incidents where um, I think empty plastic bottles, stones were lobbed from protest areas at police officers. But I would stress that in several cases that we looked at, those people that were hit didn't really have anything to do with that. They were in many times physically separate to where those things were happening. And so I think it's possible in some cases law enforcement agencies were riled up because some of their officers were coming under fire from from items that were thrown. But that spilled out into wider areas of the same city on the same day and people were hit in in a kind of escalation of, of what was going on. And, you know, police departments, although they differ city by city, they have rules governing when these things can be fired. And in many cases police officers need a, a cause to fire them, such as a threat to life or to property. And in some cases, we just found that that just was not the case. These people sometimes were just walking away. They were moving out of an intersection, having been told to by the police, and yet they were still hit. And so, yes, as we saw in some of these protests across the country, um, police did come under fire from, from some items sometimes, but sometimes that was actually removed from, from these people being injured. Several lawsuits have been filed against the Denver Police Department for its response to protests. A federal judge issued an order in June temporarily restraining DPD from using projectiles and agents against peaceful protesters. The judge called some Denver police officers' actions disgusting. Colorado has since passed a Police Accountability Act that specifically prohibits targeting the head and also prohibits firing projectiles indiscriminately into a crowd. John, are you seeing similar legislation elsewhere? We're not really. I think um, Colorado has been uh, pretty ahead of other places in doing that. There, there are other cities, other jurisdictions where there hasn't really been much reaction. Um, there's been sort of shock from pictures of protesters and the inju- injuries that they sustained, but no real um, nationwide effort to kind of curb the use of these things. And Russell, we... We've reached out to the Denver Police Department for comment and didn't hear back. Do you know if your case is being investigated and have you filed a complaint? Um, I don't know that. That's probably a better question for my uh, legal team on the progress or the status of any of that type of stuff. I'm just focused on trying to cope and heal and get back to some type of normal life. And this is such a life-changing event. How are you doing? Uh, it's been incredibly overwhelming to try to adjust to just having one eye. I can't, I have a blind spot, so I run into things, I run into people. I 
uh, my balance is affected. So just walking and sitting and standing is a challenge and I can't do the things I love anymore. I can't skateboard and I can't snowboard and I can't play catch with my nephew and I can't play golf with my brothers and I can't it's my whole life has been taken from me and a new life has been put in its place and there's not one single aspect of my life that hasn't been affected by this thank you so much for sharing and thank you to you both for being here thank you thanks john swain's video report on washingtonpost.com is called blinded by police Russell Strong of Lakewood is an artist and works in the cannabis industry. He lost an eye while attending a Black Lives Matter protest in May. When we come back, tracking the number of people who've died from COVID-19 in Colorado and why there are more deaths that can't be explained. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. In Colorado, the number of people who have died so far this year is about 3,200 more than is typical for this point in the year. We know about half of those deaths are directly due to the novel coronavirus. The other 1,600 are a bit of a mystery. CPR's Andrea Dukakis is here to talk about why. Andrea, welcome. Thanks. First of all, let's talk about the number of people who have died from COVID-19 in Colorado. Some people doubt that's even accurate. This has been controversial and why some people say the number of COVID deaths has been inflated. When we talk about fatalities, the main category is those who've died from COVID, where the virus is determined to be the cause of death. The latest number of deaths in Colorado directly attributed to COVID is 1,643. But there have been about 120 deaths of people who had the virus, but where COVID may not have been listed as the cause. Often those two numbers are lumped together when you talk about COVID fatalities, and that's led some people to think the numbers are being overcounted. But experts say there aren't enough additional cases to drive a real overcount. We spoke on the show earlier this week to the El Paso County coroner, Dr. Leon Kelly. Kelly thinks there's a psychological reason people doubt these death numbers. This is one of the scariest things we've dealt with as a country, as a world, in, in a very, very long time. And, and our natural inclination is, is when we hear something awful, is some of us have trouble grasping that. Denial is a very powerful thing. And whether that's about your own health or the health of your, your world, it's always easier to doubt than it is to accept. So that's just part of how humans are. Dr. Kelly says it's much more likely COVID-related deaths are being undercounted. There are literally dozens of people who touch these death investigations to come to that conclusion that COVID played a significant role in that death. The numbers that we report out here at El Paso County, and undoubtedly my colleagues across the country, are accurate. It's typically not that we're inflating the numbers. It's hard to actually account for all of the impact that COVID is going to have on our society. Right. So he's talking about those additional deaths that are above the norm for this time of year that haven't been linked to COVID-19. We analyzed the number of deaths in Colorado so far this year compared to the average number of deaths during the same period in the five previous years. There are about 1,600 excess deaths over and above those reported as COVID cases. Glenn Mays, who's with the Colorado School of Public Health, says it's likely a combination of factors that explains these excess deaths. 
So, for example, people who died prior to getting a COVID test and having confirmation of their infection status, that's one reason for an undercount in COVID deaths are just people who had the infection, who died prior to having that infection confirmed with a laboratory uh, test. And some of those may be people who had the virus early on before the first COVID death was officially counted at a time when people weren't as aware of the virus. Mays says more people have also died this year for another reason, the secondary effects of COVID-19. The second category of excess deaths are people who died from other causes, but their deaths were related to, for example, not being able to receive timely care or not being able to you know, access hospital services or medical care, primarily because they knew about the risks of COVID infection and people have been avoiding seeking medical care. That includes people who went into cardiac arrest and those who delayed treatment for things like a stroke. COVID-19 didn't directly lead to those fatalities, but the circumstances caused by the pandemic may have led to the deaths. There also may be more overdose deaths related to delayed care. We spoke previously on Colorado Matters with the sister of a woman who died from an opioid overdose. She believes that it was because doctors delayed her appointment for her monthly shots to reduce her addiction cravings. There may also have been more suicides and homicides, but it's still unclear if those are related to the pandemic. So to clarify, more than 1,600 deaths so far this year directly related to COVID-19, and another 1,600 that may or may not have been related. Yeah, counting both COVID and non-COVID deaths, Colorado had more than 3,200 fatalities above average through the first 26 weeks of the year. And as my colleague and brilliant number cruncher Chuck Murphy says, that number is larger than the population of Frisco. Wow. When we talk about fatalities, though, there is a little good news, right? Right. On June 30th, we had our first day in Colorado without an official COVID death since mid-March. On July 3rd, we had another day without an official death. That's a good sign, but unfortunately, we've seen an uptick in cases lately, and we've had about 50 deaths so far this month. So it's tough to predict the state's trajectory on the virus. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you. CPR's Andrea Dukakis tracking the number of deaths associated with COVID-19 in Colorado. For months, hospitals have been adapting their policies and procedures to accommodate COVID-19 patients. On labor and delivery floor, that meant patients were limited to having only one person accompany them into the hospital. A nurse in Louisville recounted her experiences before and after COVID started to CPR's Claire Cleveland. I can remember so vividly when the baby came out and the older sister just burst into tears. And then the grandmother is sobbing and the husband was crying and I was crying. It was just exceptional. One I will not forget. My name is Lauren Yossi. I'm a labor and delivery nurse at Avisa Adventist Hospital in Louisville, Colorado, and I work the night shift from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. I always knew I was going to pursue becoming a midwife, um, and the first step was to go to nursing school, and women's health has just always been important to me. Women empowerment was a really big thing in my family. 
work for Avista, which is under the umbrella of Centura. And all of a sudden we had to come to work early to attend these hospital-wide huddle meetings and then hear from head people of Avista, okay, here's what we're doing now. Here's what the numbers say. Now we're changing all of our policies for this. And even if I worked three shifts in a row, that meeting would be different every single day. That's what made me realize it was like super serious. Big things like COVID really affect how people perceive their own care. So there's tons of women who just neglected like months of prenatal appointments because they were so afraid of getting COVID that they were like, I would rather get less prenatal care than expose myself. So they've been like holed up in their houses for months. I think it has given me an awareness of like these disparities in our society because I had been wondering for so long when I have you know five kids in the room for this birth I always thought to myself what if they couldn't bring their kids other hospitals and other units actually do have some visitor restrictions normally speaking just without COVID um, but ours does not you're allowed to bring you know 85 people with you and 10 children and Um, at any hour and you can stay as long as you want. So the visitor restrictions were like, wow, (laughs) how is anybody going to follow this? And now I know (laughs) when they can't bring their kids, they're birthing by themselves, essentially. That's what I miss is that moment of anticipation when the baby comes out, celebrating that with families and being able to see like grandparents become grandparents for the first time and even if it's not my patient if I'm walking in the hallway and I hear you know a woman kind of yell out and then you hear a baby cry and then seeing the grandparents in the hallway all like hugging and crying and yelling out they're so excited like they can tell the baby has come just that like joy of birth I miss. I optimistically hope in two years it will just be back to normal, but I think in a year from now I'll still be wearing a surgical mask all the time while I work, and then in two years (laughs) maybe there will be a vaccine by that point and we can go about doing our same deal. I don't know. I think we're going to be like this for a while. You can read this and other profiles about healthcare workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic at CPR.org. Parents, we want to hear from you. What's going through your mind as schools get ready to welcome back students? Are you concerned about your child attending class in person or maybe worried about what keeping them home could mean for your job? Call us at 303-871-9191 and leave us a message at extension 480. We may use your comments on air as a part of a discussion with teachers and parents about the challenges of learning right now. Again, that's CPR's main number, 303-871-9191, extension 480.
The pandemic has transformed Old Town Arvada. Three blocks closed to automobile traffic so shoppers and diners could more easily distance. My colleague Ryan Warner reports on whether it's been effective. Let me set the scene a little. Old Town Arvada is filled with historic buildings. It's about a 20-minute drive from Denver. It's on the G-Line commuter rail. We have these awesome brick-paved streets, and it's just this really quaint kind of piece of Americana, if you will. That's Joe Hengstler of the Business Improvement District. When COVID-19 hit, quaintness alone wasn't going to cut it. Old Town needed to make room for physical distancing. So they did the no-car thing. We've activated those blocks with additional street furniture. We had expanded patios created by a local manufacturer called Blackhound Design. And so all the businesses have matching patios that go out, out over the sidewalk and into the street in many cases. We threw up the Christmas lights early just to add a little bit of additional vibrancy to the downtown and um, really just kind of made it into a friendly pedestrian mall. In all honesty, without these street closures, many of our businesses probably would have had to close down just because we couldn't get enough people in. Scott Spears owns a bunch of businesses in town. We have scrumptious ice cream and candy. We have schoolhouse kitchen libations. We have sock. We have super zoom bang bang. And we have so radish. And what are those last three? Sock is a, we just sell socks. Super Zoom Bang Bang is a toy store. And so Radish is primarily vegan. Spears' business isn't where it was last summer, but the ability to spill into the street has indeed been a lifesaver. People in Old Town have always asked for the streets to close to make it similar to a Pearl Street in Boulder or 16th Street in Denver. And this kind of helped to kind of do it as a pilot program. Um, It was kind of a pilot program by fire. So I don't know. I mean, people like to be outside, especially in the summertime. They like to be able to walk down and enjoy themselves and not to worry about the cars, not deal with the noise of the traffic. So I think it's a really nice thing. And I think that if it continued, people would love it. We've heard a lot of feedback. I mean, I've, I've personally had text messages and emails saying, please, if we can keep these streets like this, that would be amazing. You know, we've gotten a lot of compliments on it, but as far as being a permanent change, that's a whole nother conversation with a lot of different work that would need to go into that. Joe Hengstler at the Old Town Arvada Business Improvement District says the street closure isn't a panacea. Cold weather's coming and that'll change things. And not every shop and restaurant is benefiting from the pedestrian boost. Just due to space constraints here in a historic downtown. So I know some of the businesses where their numbers aren't quite where they should be. So I know for some of those restaurants, like they would love it if they could have everybody back into their restaurant. At the same time, they're well aware that, you know, safety is a priority and we need to get over the pandemic. And then again, you know, we have some retailers that may be off the beaten path. And so it's really just, you know, I would stress to everybody that it's just important to get out and really support your local businesses right now. Just please wear a mask, Hanksler says. Keep your distance. Jefferson County Public Health reports more than 80 new COVID cases in Arvada in the last two weeks. One other change the pandemic has ushered in? It's a smaller one, but menus at Scott Spears restaurants that you can bring up on your phone by scanning a QR code. You can hold the camera up and it brings you right to the website, or you can just type in a website and everything's on your phone. So you don't have to touch something that someone else has touched. It saves a lot of money for restaurants as well, because there's a lot of printing involved with menus, especially when you change things and you can just update it immediately. Spears said he'd actually tried the smartphone-friendly menus long before the pandemic, but customers hated them back then. 
which goes to show how COVID-19 is reshaping things from streets to attitudes. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. There's another way Arvada has been able to help local businesses. The city issued more than 250 emergency loans when the pandemic hit. Now, thanks to the CARES Act, those have been converted to grants and don't have to be paid back. Up next, fly fishing. It's proving to be just the thing for people looking to escape the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? Keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Fountain Creek, which runs through Colorado Springs, has had a tumultuous history. It's long been a dumping ground for the Pikes Peak region, prone to flooding and laden with pollution. However, after years of effort, locals are finding glimmers of hope swimming in the stream. Here's CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. Basically, Fountain Creek has a reputation for just being kind of gross. You know, that it was like, you stick your leg in there and it'll rot off yeah, kind right, of a thing. Right. Yeah, or if you catch a fish and it's got three eyes looking at you. That, that kind of reputation, yeah. That's Richard Milady. He manages the city's stormwater department. I grew up in the Carl Springs. I was born here. When I was a kid, there was no trail along Fountain Creek. And, uh, so, and nobody used it. There are leftover pollutants from the region's early mining history. A sewer line beneath the creek broke in the late 90s, letting loose a torrent of raw sewage. Also, the nature of the local watershed makes the creek prone to erratic and sometimes massive flash floods. This creek is one of the flashiest and most difficult creeks in the nation. I mean, it's really incredibly unique. Colorado Springs sat by as other cities in the state poured cash into their once industrial waterways to transform them into recreational assets over the last few decades. Think of the South Platte as it runs through Denver, or the Arkansas Riverwalk in Pueblo. The Springs has lately been rushing to catch up. Hundreds of millions have been spent on water cleanup and to build miles of trail along the creekside. Milady and I are speaking from one right downtown as people regularly walk and bike past us. In the last four years, we've made massive progress. I mean, more progress in that relationship and the city's attention to Fountain Creek than, than in the last 50 years. Still, you can see how much work remains by visiting Dorchester Park on the city's south side. The park's secluded and right by the creek. It's long been a haven for those experiencing homelessness. There's usually trash everywhere and multiple camps hidden among the cottonwood trees and willows. Alan Peake comes out here with a garbage bag every so often to tidy up. I find a lot of like personal wipes I won't touch. Peak picks up the trash not out of a passion for the park itself, but for this stretch of water. Here, efforts to protect the creek from incidents like that 1990s sewer line break have had unintended benefits. There's some man-made features right here that drops the water down in kind of a little waterfall and pool. You have some undercuts above that. And then above that, there's a riffle and a run. If you're an angler, you know what these terms mean their great trout habitat. Peak is a fly fisherman. When he moved to the region more than a decade back, the idea of fishing Fountain Creek... It was always kind of a joke in the fly fishing world. You know, online and social media, actually. 
up until I started catching some really decent and respectable brown trout. A couple years ago, Peek started posting online photos of himself pulling 12, 14, 16-inch fish from a stream many just assumed was barren, at least as it ran through the city. I've caught rainbow trout up to 18 inches down by Walmart, and brown trout bigger than that. Peak's success has garnered a lot of attention and surprise. It's led to a whole community of anglers who post their Fountain Creek catches to a local Facebook group. Environmental organizations are now looking at the turnaround in the stream's ecosystem. In part, it's even inspired a local fly fishing shop. My name's Dave Lineweber, and I'm uh, the owner of Angler's Covey. Lineweber's store has bordered Fountain Creek since 2004, and his long-held dream for the property is finally moving toward reality. He's leased the stretch of creek behind his shop from the city for the next five years. We're going to erect a couple of fences and um, control who can get access to the property through Angler's Covey. Fences because this area is often used as a pass-through between homeless campsites. Lineweber wants to clean it up, improve the section's trout habitat, and hopefully hold casting lessons down there one day. It will always be open to the public. You just would need to check in with us so that we know you're down here type thing. Back at Dorchester Park, Alan Peake says he would never eat the fish out of the creek. He releases them all. Outside of that, he's not really worried about water pollution. He just washes up after his visits. It's not like all our mountain streams are perfect and clean. So it's kind of common sense, you know, everywhere you go. Certain stretches of the creek do still test above the state's minimum standard for E. coli contamination at times. But the city now argues that broadly, the stream is safe. Peak isn't fishing Fountain Creek right now. That's more because the water temperature is pretty high. That puts a lot more stress on the fish when they're caught. He's looking to protect that fragile population and grow it for the future. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Let's stay on the topic of fishing. A lot more Coloradans are casting their lines in this time of coronavirus, at least if fishing license sales are any indication. We asked Colorado Parks and Wildlife for the latest sales figures, and so far this year, the state has given out close to 600,000 fishing licenses. By comparison, only 440,000 licenses were sold during the entire 219, 2019 fishing season. We have a couple of guests on the line to argue for fly fishing in particular as the ideal pandemic-safe hobby. John Gierak has written more than 20 books about fly fishing. He lives in Lyons, Colorado. John, welcome to Colorado Matters. Glad to be here. Also, we have Caitlin Boyer, who currently lives in Cascade. Thanks for joining us. She's a fly fishing guide. Thanks for having me. We recently spoke with Julius A. Song. He's an immigrant from West African country of Cameroon. He's in Colorado Springs going to college as a part of his service in the U.S. Army. Julius tried fly fishing for the first time recently because of the coronavirus closure. Going out there and doing the fishing, thinking about something else, having that fresh air was amazing. Now, John, most of us can appreciate that feeling Julius is describing there. Why do you think more people are turning to this sport in the COVID era? Well, I think it's custom made for social distancing. You know, your uh, fly fly fisherman's uh, personal space is about 50 yards and you're outside, which is supposed to be safer. And, you know, it's just fishing 
is just a great fun thing to do. People have always liked it, and it's got a, you know, as Tom McGuane said, it's custom made for the deadbeat. <laughs> and fly fishing, it's cool now. It's seen as a fashionable thing to be into. You say that when you started the sport in the 1960s, though, it wasn't that way. It was more of something your grandpa did. So why did it appeal to you then? Oh, I, I think because of that. Um, it was the 60s. I was a bit of a hippie. And it was uh, it was unusual. And most people who fished looked askance at it a little bit, thought it was sort of a strange antique thing to be doing. And um, that idea attracted me. Now, we should back up for a little bit. Just for those who don't know or maybe haven't seen it, what's the main difference between regular fishing and fly fishing? Uh, well, it's um, basically when you cast any other way, you're casting the weight of a lure or a sinker or something like that. And with fly fishing, you get to cast a weightless lure because you're casting the weight of the line. The lines are different. They're heavier, fatter. So you get to fish small flies that float. Don't have to, but some of them do. Um, And it lets you uh, adequately imitate insects that the trout eat. Now, Caitlin, you started fly fishing a decade ago. You're a guide now, and you say that most of your clients are women, and usually women without experience. Women are actually the fastest-growing demographic in fly fishing. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think there's a lot of elements involved there. Um, Different social media platforms have made a huge impact on that. Um, They make fly fishing very tangible and visual, visual to women, And that can really inspire women. Um, I think also the availability of gear being made for women. Um, We used to have to just wear men's waders and boots, and they were huge and (laughs) didn't fit our bodies right. So now we have custom gear made for our body types that fit us right. Um, Women supporting women, you know, with groups and clinics. Uh, getting each other out on the water and learning from each other. And I don't know, I think like companies supporting women and brand campaigns supporting women uh, really puts us out there. And how did you get into it? Uh, My dad taught me, actually. He's from Montana. And uh, he started teaching me about a decade ago. And then I just kind of got hooked. Now, you mentioned social media, particularly Instagram, and you're pretty involved in the Instagram community around fly fishing. Tell me about how that's mm-hmm. helped to grow it among women and among people in general. Like I said before, I think it just made it really tangible. You know, like you, you see the pictures and, you know, you see a, a woman holding a fish and you think, hey, maybe I could do that. You know, it, it looks fun. Um, but, you know, when I started my instagram page for fly fishing in 2015 there were there there weren't very many women on there at the time and now there's you know hundreds if not thousands of women on there that have these you know fly fishing dedicated pages um so i think it's just seeing it and being inspired and you teach a fly fishing guide certification program at colorado mountain college in leadville and you helped start a scholarship for women joining in that program why was that important, and how has it gone? 
Well, it was important to me because when I attended the program, I was the only woman in the program. And the following year, there was only one woman. And her and I really, her name was Robin Robin uh, Schmidt. And we really connected and thought, you know, like, how can we change this? How can we get more women in the program? So we just brainstormed. And at the time, Orvis had just launched their 50-50 on the water campaign and we reached out to them to see if they would sponsor two women, um, and they did. They gave us an in-kind donation, so two women were set up with uh, waders, boots, rod, reel, all that. Um, and then we also offered a uh, scholarship tuition. So, you know, one woman was, you know, her tuition was completely covered and her living expenses were covered. And so... Uh, Last year, the program, the amount of women went up 70%. Wow. John, turning back to you, you published your latest book that's just this June. It's called Dumb Luck and the Kindness of Strangers. Your books are typically collections of essays about your life on the river. Tell us about this book. Uh, well, it's um, it's very much like the others. Um, you know, like every essayist in the world, I start with a subject and then just let it spread out wherever it wants to go and uh, out into real life and uh you know all the all the literary stuff that we that we deal with um i've always been interested in the things people do the value of which they never question um like ask an investment banker what's so interested about money he'll just give you a blank look cuz he never thought about it he just assumed it was interesting um, and I'm I'm interested in that kind of stuff, the things people do for the for its own sake, not for any gain. And it's fishing is just that way? fun. Yeah. It's fishing that for you. Yeah, I think it is. And I, you know, it's sometimes it's a little bit of a struggle because I do make my living writing about it. But I'm able to, uh, how do they say it now? Compartmentalize that. I can. I can fish because I like to fish, and then later at my desk, I can write about it. I, I don't fish thinking about writing all the time. Now, the coronavirus well, actually... I try not. I try not. <laughs> right, try to turn off the writing brain. Um, the coronavirus had actually canceled the book tour you had planned for this summer. What have you been up to instead? Well, we put the tour, as much of the tour as possible, online. So I spent a lot of time in my office with my cat on my lap talking on Zoom. And um, that seemed to have worked okay. Um, you, have to, you have to learn to embrace the sort of garage band funkiness of Zoom. It isn't, I don't think it's quite perfected yet. But people, people seem fine with it. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, it doesn't quite work, but all the screw-ups are amusing and um, people enjoy looking over your shoulder at the room you're in and things like that. It was okay. And the books seems to be selling well. So I'm there with you on the funkiness of zoom calls. You know, John, I also want to ask you as more people get into the sport, there might be bigger crowds on the rivers and streams of Colorado. Do you worry that that will change the experience or even affect the health of rivers? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, it's, and it's not a new thing. It's, I can't blame it on the coronavirus. There's, the, the rivers have been getting progressively more crowded. I, I moved out here in the 60s, 
and since then the um, population of the state has just about doubled. And I'll swear that every one of those new people bought a fly rod the week they got here. So yeah, it's it's a little harder to find a a place to yourself, but um, uh, we manage. <laughs> and Caitlin, what about for you? How are you thinking about newcomers to the river? Um, I think it's potentially a good thing. Um, you know, with the the money for fishing licenses and whatnot, that can be put into conservation, which is positive. Um, for me personally, um, I'm a guide at Angler's Covey, and my trips have tripled since last year. So business is actually really good for me. Um, so that's definitely a positive thing. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. That's fly fishing writer John Girak, whose newest book, Dumb Luck and the Kindness of Strangers, was just released last month. Also with us, we had Caitlin Boyer. She's a fly fishing guide in Cascade and teaches a course on becoming a fishing guide at Colorado Mountain College. Colorado's ski season came to an abrupt end in March when coronavirus barreled into the state and Governor Polis closed all downhill resorts. But in the last few weeks, ski areas have begun to emerge from hibernation and welcome visitors back. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg went to Vail to see how it's navigating a summer season like none before. Halfway up Fail Mountain, and just a few minutes' hike from Gondola One's constant whirl, the view grabs you. Vibrant green meadows, cloudless blue sky, the gray crags of the Gore Range off in the distance. Oh, it's amazing. The, the altitude's a bit much for me, but, <laughs> but that's not Vale's fault. It's absolutely beautiful. Vanessa Sutton is here from Broomfield with her husband, Phil. So it's our anniversary today, 22 years. And they wanted to get out of the city safely. I love all the precautions, the distancing, the masks. Uh, They seem to be doing a real good job of doing the best they can to contain the spread. That's especially important here in Eagle County, which was a COVID-19 hotspot in the beginning of the pandemic. Down at the mountain's base, Vail Ski Resort's Chief Operating Officer, Beth Howard, says before the reopening on July 1st, management spent the entire three-and-a-half-month closure mapping out how to return. We've been very open and clear through pre-opening all the way through to opening that safety is our highest priority, and everything we do is through that lens. That's why you won't see her or any other Vail employee not in a mask, even while outside. And the resort requires visitors to mask up in all indoor spaces. And that means gondolas, too. Other measures include physically distanced waiting lines, closed dressing rooms at stores, and -and grab-and-go meals instead of indoor dining at the resort's eateries. Up on the mountain, Vail employee Matthew Good sprays disinfectant over picnic tables, a task he'll repeat all day long. Anytime a guest sits down and gets up or every half hour. The resort says there seems to be an uptick in Colorado visitors, but tourists are still coming in from across the country. My name is Manoj Bardwaj. Um, I live in Houston, Texas. Where he and his brother are both doctors. They're here on vacation with their families. We're just taking a little mental break from all the craziness and wildness up down there and all over the world, actually. And a break from the Texas humidity. Just be one with nature and be one with ourselves, be at peace for a little bit, you know? Bardwaj says he feels safe at the resort. I think they're doing it just right. I don't sense that panic everywhere. I think they're playing it 
cautiously because you never know what's going to happen down the road. The number of coronavirus cases has been steadily rising in Eagle County. Vail and other ski areas are under pressure to get things right now as they look toward their busiest season, winter. When you come and visit a ski area, whether it's in the summer or whether it's in the winter, you're going to spend the vast majority of your time outside. Chris Linsmeyer is with Ski Country USA, a ski area trade group. Early in the pandemic, crowded ski towns were a hub for virus transmission. Linsmeyer says resorts are trying to figure out how to manage things like social distancing in lodges and other indoor areas. But once you're up and, and on the mountain, you know, you, you're inherently socially distant. He says ski area owners and operators are glass half full people. You'd be hard pressed to find a more optimistic industry than the ski industry. So so even if attendance is lower than normal, Linsmeyer says resorts will persevere, just likely without the festivals and big concerts. Ski areas are already used to uncertainty. We joke that we're snow farmers. And maybe navigating a pandemic winter isn't that different from dealing with a bad snow winter. But at Vail Ski Resort, even with the social distancing, cleaning, and across-the-board mask wearing, Boulder resident Lee Brookins still feels vulnerable to the larger world. This is an international town, the way that you know people are here visiting from all over. So Brookins and their wife are being cautious and staying mostly outdoors with their almost three-year-old, Harper. Hi. We're willing to ride the gondola, though. Yeah. <laughs> Because this is great entertainment for her. Other than that, the family's spending time on trails and at nearby lakes and far from everyone else. On Vail Mountain, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. Natasha Watts. And I'm Avery Lill. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.